Well, continuing the story in Mark chapter 6, so if you have your devices, or the old-fashioned way, flip or click. Mark chapter 6. Jesus and his disciples are rejected in Nazareth amongst Jesus' own relatives and the very community that he grew up in. Worse than that, though, they were offended by him. They took offense at his presence and what he was proclaiming, who he was proclaiming to be primarily. Hardened in their thinking, set in their ways, they knew what they knew. And so Jesus, instead of staying and convincing them, withdrew from them. We looked at that passage last week. And with that experience fresh in their minds, Jesus sends out his disciples two by two to represent him, to proclaim the message of the kingdom, to take authority over evil spirits and to heal where they are able, to represent him, to extend the kingdom. And as if they needed a reminder, Jesus told them what they could expect, that in some places they too would be rejected and refused. There would be hardened hearts and closed minds and closed doors. They would be rejected just as Jesus was, for a student is not above his master. Let's read this account. Mark 6, 7 through 14. Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. But if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons and they anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. Now King Herod heard of it for Jesus' name was becoming known. I think this is such an incredible passage and likely overlooked in its significance, certainly if we're reading through the Gospels at a faster pace than as we're doing so together on Sundays. But if we will consider it, how it fits into this broader story, I think it is striking, if not shocking. To be clear, this reveals far more about Jesus than it does about the disciples. And what we learn about Jesus from this passage, I think, is radical and should have implications for our lives and our church today, the church today. For if we are understanding this story, then who in their right minds would send out these 12 at this point to represent Jesus, to proclaim the gospel, the good news, to heal and to confront evil spirits? Every step of the way, these men have been confused Jesus, what does this mean? Jesus, explain this to us. They've been frightened, terrified, filled with great fear. Look at Mark chapter 4 on the boat. They've been uncertain, repeatedly asking the question, who is this? As they're continually surprised by Jesus. Their faith is clearly immature. Their knowledge and their theology is clearly incomplete. It's got some pretty big gaps at this point, as they don't even understand or believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection in the ascension or the coming of the Holy Spirit. If these were interns in a business and you were their boss or their CEO, you would be considered a fool to send them out to represent your brand, 
or on any significant assignment or to try to make sales. If, these, if this were a seminary, these students are far from graduation, and we're wondering if they should even be encouraged to go into pastoral ministry. No denomination would have ordained them, but Jesus sends them. Jesus, the unexpected one, proclaiming the upside-down kingdom and doing so in unconventional ways, as we've seen throughout the story. If Jesus is willing to send these disciples on mission, to use a little Christianese, what does that reveal? Every one of them still doubted him. We know that Peter will outright deny him repeatedly. Remember that Judas is one of the 12 that Jesus is sending. I wonder who he partnered him with. And Judas would later betray him. All of them, or almost all of them, would abandon him at his moment of greatest need. His three closest would fall asleep on him when he asked desperately for them to stay awake and alert and pray for him. And yet Jesus, whether he knew these details, but he knows their heart and their character, sends them at this point in the story to preach repentance, to preach see things a new way, change your thinking. And certainly included in that is the preaching of the Messiah, that the Messiah is Jesus. He has come. He has come to establish and expand in fullness the kingdom of God. And though they were incomplete in their knowledge, they knew enough to point to Jesus as the Messiah. Isn't this amazing? They preach the gospel, the good news, with significant doubt, immaturity, and incomplete theology and doctrine. And yet they didn't even have the Holy Spirit. Again, this is description, and it's so vital that we understand as we read scriptures, what is description, what, what describes what happened, and then what is prescription, what is told for all the followers of God or all the followers of Jesus that should be applied in our lives. And while this is description, because it doesn't say, so when you go out for the kingdom, go like this every time. But there are principles here that we see reinforced through the story that are prescriptive for us, or at least should make us reconsider perhaps or rethink the way that we would follow Jesus as disciples, the when we go as agents in his kingdom, as his ambassadors, those who are trying to be faithful to the Great Commission, to make disciples of Jesus who would make other disciples, to see multiplication occur. To be clear, this is not a just go for it type message, or don't worry about being equipped or education just by faith, baby. This is not that. I'm supportive of all of those things. But I'm quite certain that many of us, or maybe most of us, perhaps all of us, have waited far longer than we have gone out in faith to join fully into the kingdom mission. We are always seeming to wait to know more, to understand more until we would measure our faith strong enough to step into new places, to represent the king, to be able to communicate the good news to all peoples. But if there's always more to learn, and we've seen that repeatedly, and if the heart and the mindset is a mindset of growth and never enough, then if we are waiting to know enough, we will ultimately never go. And life in God's kingdom is far more about experience than it is about knowledge anyway. And Jesus seems to know that and model that here for his disciples. 
Well, it's baseball season, and I'm watching a fair amount of baseball. You don't learn to hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball by reading about it in books, by studying the physics of it, or by watching the Mariners on TV. To be clear, you'll never learn about hitting by watching the Mariners on TV. I had to go there, but they are building, aren't they? It's an exciting young team. The way you learn to hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball is to put the helmet on and get in the batter's box and start swinging. And maybe not start at 95. Maybe start a little bit less and build up to that. But you've got to be ready to strike out a whole lot and probably come away with some bruises. Jesus says, go. But we say to Jesus often, I'm not ready. Or collectively, we're not ready. And I'm certain the disciples would have said the same as he was beginning to send them out, to give them their commission in this time, knowing that they too would come back to him. Go out and come back. Let's, let's work this together. But I'm not going with you to these towns. We need to start seeing the multiplication of the kingdom. And he's telling them they are ready, and they're likely saying, no, we are not. Haven't you seen our doubts? Haven't you seen our uncertainty? Haven't you seen our failings when we've tried to pray for people, to, to pray against the, the evil spirits, and we've needed your help every step of the way? And he says, go. And as much as we can shake our heads sometimes at the doubt or the lack of faith or the fear of the disciples, if we are truly understanding the story and applying it, we better be careful. Because if we don't see ourselves in that, then we are failing to grasp the story and to connect it. Because ultimately the disciples do go, don't they? With all of their doubts and uncertainties, they still went out and they experienced power in the kingdom and in the authority of Jesus. Are we still waiting personally? Well, I've got four things to highlight, and I'm sure there can be more from this passage, but this is clearly a core part of missional discipleship, to use more Christianese, for Jesus and I think for us too. And so we're, since we're speaking in those kind, that kind of parlance, I've got some alliteration for you. I don't always give you this kind of a gift, but I've got a four-point alliteration as we see how Jesus sends out his disciples and what that meant for them and maybe what it means for us, teamed in trust, through trial and tension. And since no one's taking notes, I won't repeat that, but I will as we go through the story. They are sent out teamed in pairs. They are not alone. And Jesus reinforces that everywhere. We need one another. There's no hero in the story but Jesus alone. Don't be the hero. We should be very wary of the impulse within us or that we see in others of that lone ranger, that rogue, that we might label it a messiah complex that he, he or she can do it on their own. And while it might be brazen, it's likely also subtle. And sometimes if you would peel back some of the vernacular at the core of it is, you're welcome to join me or us, but we don't need you. If you can match or fit or behave or perform, you're welcome with us, but ultimately we don't need you. I don't need you. We should be very wary of that kind of pride. Because these men, if nothing else, go out humbly, uncertain, wondering, desperately needing the authority of Jesus. When we are equally partnered with one another, working together according to the various gifts that God has given, needing one another to represent the kingdom, and in full submission to one another, this honors Christ. It is what he blesses, and it is his desire. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another because of Christ, out of reverence to him, he alone is the one who gives us any kind of gifting and authority. So we submit to one another to extend his kingdom. 
Furthermore, if we do so, it protects us from the applause and the approval of others when things go well by our measurements. And if things fail, although you might say there's no such thing as failure to walk out in faith and to strive to extend his kingdom and to do so one with another in humility and submission, then no matter what we might say is failure, there could be none because faith is never a failure. But by our measure, sometimes we see, man, that fell on its face. (laughs) I've totally messed that up and I've got to rethink so many things. We at least would fail together and help one another up. And I'm calling us to do mission partner, to do mission together, especially as we come through or out of a pandemic. And that will be a fuzzy line. I know it's difficult. There won't just be a date we can circle on the calendar. It's so incremental, just like we fell into it incrementally and understood more and more. We are coming out in the same way in these months ahead. I'm calling us to re-engage as we relaunch and just about relaunch everything, but specifically our life groups, our missional communities meeting together to do life together, encourage one another all the more to good into our communities, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces. I feel like there's such a loss for us in this season amidst a whole year of loss That is one that needs to be renewed. And I pray and call us as we seek with a target to be relaunching so many things coming into this fall, re-engagement in missional community will be vital. So if you're longing for that, hang in there. I think some areas and places are opening up and you're probably finding life from those reconnections. We've had some in these last couple weeks, just so encouraging and life-giving as we continue to navigate uh, this pandemic and strive to understand it to the best of our ability. That's number one. We are teamed together. Number two, we must learn to trust. Clearly to trust one another, and part of that is in the mutual submission. It's an entire different message if we're going to be talking about trusting one another, how to develop that through vulnerability and transparency and and building that over time. That's not this message. But as we tune our trust into Jesus alone, into his authority, we will be tuned together. I think it was A.W. Tozer that said, a hundred pianos could be tuned to the same fork, and therefore they will be tuned to one another. We need to be tuned and in trust with Jesus and his authority in us as we go to engage his kingdom work, as we confront the evil spirits, the evil forces of darkness that are in our world that are present. And if we are still wondering if they exist, it means we have so isolated ourselves from the world that we have been blinded and Satan is likely just thrilled with that posture in that place because you cannot engage this world and come to any other conclusion that there is a spiritual force of evil and darkness at work against peoples, individuals, communities, and ultimately the kingdom of this world. And the only way we could stand firm and resist is in the authority of Jesus, the authority that he gives right here to his disciples He gives to all of his followers with some of his final words, the very famous Matthew 28, 18. Many have called it the greatest commission for all of his followers. Jesus came to his disciples and said, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples and surely I am with you to the end of the age. It didn't even need to be spoken here in reference to what he was saying to them. It's been given to me. I'm leaving. You will have the Holy Spirit. Now go. I am with you. Go in my authority. He's already sent them and showed them what this would look like, and they've already seen it at work. They can trust him fully. 
Jesus gives his authority to all of us today. He gives it. Have we received it? Do we believe in that authority? Nothing to do with ourselves, but in him alone. To stand firm against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, as the Apostle Paul calls the church to in Ephesians chapter 6. The authority of Jesus alone. Jesus took back from Satan what he took in that transaction in the garden with Adam and Eve. He resisted all of the lies that ultimately Adam and Eve gave into to give authority to Satan. They traded. An exchange took place there. Jesus takes it back and gives that same authority in his name against evil spirits and against the forces of darkness. Those that go out in their own strength are foolish and in danger. Acts 19 tells a story. It's, it's a brief maybe sobering and maybe funny story of the seven sons of Sceva who go out in their own authority, not knowing anything about what they proclaim and coming up against the evil forces of darkness. They end up scarred, scared, and in their skivvies. Isn't the Bible great? As if Jesus wasn't asking his disciples enough and isn't asking us enough to trust him in all things, to be the source of all authority. He now asks them to trust him in provision. Go with nothing, he says. Depend on others for all that you will have. Trust me, trust God in your provision. There's perhaps a nod here, at least a parallel to Israel's story, learning to follow God's leadership and to trust him fully as they came out of Egypt, were delivered and given nothing. No food, he would give them manna. No water, he would provide it again and again, even in the desert from a rock. No extra clothing, he miraculously through 40 years allowed their clothing and their sandals to never wear out. And this is similar how he's sending the disciples with nothing extra. The only way they can keep going is if God miraculously provides for them and if they receive the hospitality of others, if they remain humble and dependent, I'm sure there's countless missionaries who have gone to whole new contexts that would tell this very testimony. We were only able to continue by the miraculous provision of God day by day, week by week, month by month, and story after story of how he provided. That's life in the kingdom, life that is fully dependent. It's all about his provision. He's the source and the reason for the life, for our life and our message this is one thing that I think the disciples seem to get right and to do well. And we see it in a couple, a couple times in this passage. First, they are anointing with oil to heal people. That's something new. Jesus didn't do that, at least not, not, not that we see in the story. So he clearly teaches them this concept that's just given a brief line here. The apostle James will tell us as we pray for others to also anoint with oil. And I think the best scholarship, and I would agree with this, is that oil, it's not magical. It doesn't make the healing happen. It's just a tangible reminder of, oh yeah, this is not our authority. It's someone else's. We are being reminded. And for us today, we would invite the Holy Spirit through the representation of that oil to come and bring the healing. Nothing that we say or do, but our humility and our dependence upon him. I think that is likely what's happening here as they anoint with oil, recognizing they don't have anything in themselves. It's only from another, from another source. And then secondly, who gets the fame and the glory here? The very That's why I included verse 14 when I read it earlier. King Herod hears of all this that is happening. 
and Jesus' name is being proclaimed. That's who he goes after. It's not the disciples who are now multiplying this work. He doesn't go to try to corral them and stop them. He goes to the source because they were representing him well. They were in authority of the name of Jesus ministering for healing and for the confrontation of the evil spirits. Perhaps it's not only a benefit, but a reason why Jesus will sometimes choose to send us far before we are ready. Because then when there is success, again, in these ways that we might say, evidence of the Holy Spirit's work of the kingdom expansion, then who gets the glory and the fame? But Jesus alone. When we wait until we're ready, until we've accumulated enough knowledge, enough of our own wisdom and enough resources to go out, it will be amazing how much we accomplish apart from God. Because we can, in our own strength, accomplish some things. But ultimately, Jesus says, apart from me, you will do nothing of lasting value. So we are sent out teamed to grow in trust, even when we're not ready, when we have our own doubts. And number three, trial. Trials will come. I'll use the twofold definition of trial. First, as an experiment, like a clinical trial. When you put to test what you have learned and have come to know, or at least what you think, but now you need to test it in the field, so to speak. You need to put it to trial so that you can discover its integrity. At any kind of innovation, at any kind of new exploration, there comes a point when someone will say, do you think it will work? As Orville Wright said to Wilbur Wright, and I might be mixing that up, and I'm certainly paraphrasing, but one brother said to another, so do you think it will actually fly? And the other said, there's only one way to find out. Fill in your own example, I'm sure. When you're ignorant, when you don't know what you don't know, and you don't even know what questions to ask, or even what the right questions are, you've got to get out and get trying. You've got to put the trial into place. You know, my kids, seven and nine, are at the perfect age where when I or we give them instruction of some kind, maybe it's in a task or a project or a chore or a sport, and we demonstrate or we instruct them, they, their immediate response, and maybe my son can hear because he's the best at this, I got it, Dad. I know. I know. And my, my response is, no, you don't know. You're seven. This is the first time you're ever hearing of this, the first time you've ever seen it. But what do they want to do? They just want to put it into action. And my response would, would simply shut that down and try to teach them more so they learn more before they can put it into action. And maybe that's not the way of Jesus as much as it is, okay, here you go. No better way. And I'm right here to debrief with you after you fall on your face or pick you up off the floor. I've got this image of my son running down our steep, uneven driveway when he's like three years old, four years old, just full out. And he can't, he, there's no way he could stop until he gets to the bottom where the street is. And just when do you allow that to happen? And it's really, for me personally, it wasn't the skinned knees and the cleanup. It was, I don't need a half day at the ER if it really goes downhill. So it's all back to centered. But we can so cut off the trial, an error of putting things into practice. 
in our context, let's bring that a little more applicable for us, as we are striving to be kingdom agents, disciples on mission, how are we investing into relationships with peoples who are very different than us across the board? How are we communicating the good news? Here's a few examples. To our Muslim and Hindu co-workers, to our LGBTQ neighbors, to our friends with opposite political views, to the poor, those experiencing homelessness, just to name a few, and so many more. How are we investing into those relationships and representing Jesus and communicating the gospel in a way that sounds like good news everywhere we go? Do our words and our deeds offer hope and even healing as the disciples were able to bring for those that were receptive? Do we know what we don't know? And we say, but I'm not ready. I need to learn more. I need to understand more about that culture, about that lifestyle, about that perspective. And then I will be equipped to go and proclaim the gospel. And that's not the way Jesus sends. And if you're, if you're one that says, I don't know where to begin, come join us at Food Truck Fridays. Every one of those that I just mentioned, join us and are here. Be present. Listen. Learn the questions that you don't even know how to ask yet. You'll stumble a little bit, and it will be a stretching experience, but it will be a kingdom one as we seek to just love and share and be in community, as truly church happens here on Friday nights. And I invite you to be a part of it if you haven't yet. Thank you for all that are regularly a part, supporting and giving. Let's continue in the months ahead. Second definition of trial, hard. That one was probably the first one that came to mind. Jesus certainly never gave them the impression that it was going to be easy. Just as he was rejected in Nazareth in his hometown by his own family, they too would be rejected. A student not above his teacher, a servant not above his master, If they reject me, they'll reject you, he said to them. If they persecute me, they'll persecute you. But some will receive and some will bless. So be faithful and persistent. James says in James 1 verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, he should give to all. He will give to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. No, it won't be easy, but it will be blessed. Now, I don't know what's harder, being rejected, being denied, being told, I don't want you, I don't want your message, you're not good enough, that's not right enough, (laughs) or standing firm and confronting the spiritual forces of evil that will be in our path. Not giving in to the lies and the temptations and the doubt to give up. Opposition from within, opposition from without, which leads to my final point. Jesus sends and we are sent, teamed, trusting through trial and intention. When we are resisted and rejected and perhaps persecuted, though I think we could maybe too quickly give that label to things that are simply resistance. When we know we don't have all the answers, And when we know we don't even have the right questions to ask, that's where we grow most spiritually, in faith, in trust, in dependence. Just as when our muscles are put under tension, they grow most. D. 
Do you know when you put your muscles under significant resistance, as in lifting weights or even body resistance to the point of fatigue, what is happening at the microfiber level of your muscles is an actual tearing. Your muscle fibers themselves, they're called micro tears. Now, to really tear a muscle is an extreme injury. But if you've ever put your muscles under that kind of resistance and you're sore and it hurts the next day, it's because there are many, many micro tears that you have put the muscle under tension and the body will restore that and repair that and it will become stronger and it's actually a form of scar tissue that will expand those muscles. That's how they grow. I think there's some significant spiritual applications to how our physical bodies work and respond to resistance and to tension. And I think they're intentional in how God has created us. It's not easy. It's not pain-free. And that's why so many of us don't do it, either physically or spiritually. But it may be the only way to grow, to be under tension to be in places of resistance, to walk in humility with vulnerability, knowing our weakness, knowing who we are and who we are not, and better yet, knowing who Jesus is. Then we can endure, and not only endure, but grow. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7 and following, we have this treasure. Ultimately, the gospel, the good news, Jesus himself has been given to us. We have this treasure a treasure like, unlike any other in jars of clay. We are but a, a clay vessel that could be shattered or broken at any moment, weak, not enduring. And we have this eternal, rich treasure given to us. Why? So that the surpassing power of God will be evidently not from us, but from him and on full display. And then Paul says, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. For we always carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And most of us would hightail it the opposite way if any one of those lines was true in our experience, to retreat to a position of security, comfort, and ease, the major gods and idols of our current Western church culture. When Jesus sends us out long before we think we're ready, he expects that we go and that we return. Paul, just a little bit later from that passage, will say, we are ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors for the king in his authority with his message, but not because of us. And where we go, we then return to the king for new orders to report how it went and how it was received and in full dependence of the one who sins. If we will endure the trials and the tension of the ever-growing trust in him that we need, we will return desperate, and this is key, dependent for help, for healing, for renewal, for rest, for wisdom. If Jesus was willing to send out his disciples like this, what does that mean for us who are disciples or meant to be disciple makers for all of us who are following Jesus? We must not put obstacles and demands and hoops to jump through that Jesus would not. Jesus was willing to send out peoples to represent him who would do it incompletely, immaturely, fail often, and need discernment and wisdom every step of the way. 
Remember, some of the most powerful evangelists and kingdom multipliers didn't have all the answers. In fact, they didn't know much at all. Right from the story of the Gospels themselves, the woman at the well, John 4, immediately goes into the city in Samaria and says, Come and see. See, all, see a man who knew everything about me. And many believed on her very testimony. Many others needed to see Jesus for themselves, but many believed on a testimony that had almost no theological foundation to support it. The blind man in John 9 didn't know much and said, said so. I don't know about all that, but what I know is I was blind and now I see because of Jesus. The demon-possessed man from Mark 5 that we just saw in this story, he wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus said, no, go to your family. Go home and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has shown mercy to you. So the man went away. This is five, Mark 5.20. The man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, so all the cities, how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. What did they have in common? They were humble. They knew what they didn't know. They were beginning to know who Jesus was and to point to him as the Messiah. And they had all experienced a healing in him. Is that true for us? Can it be true for us even today as we've assembled in this place and are distracted by sunshine and weed whackers and kids and family and our plans later? Can we in these moments draw near to Jesus, come back to his feet as king, as the one who sends as ambassadors in full humility and full dependence and desperation for even more of what he would give to us? As I end this sermon, I wanted to have a clear plan for all of us, and I thought that just didn't fit with the this theme. I don't have all the answers. I don't know what this means for us as we navigate a whole new season, and really, I believe, a whole new world that has been microwaved in so many ways to growth and to innovation, to change. We are coming into a new season. We are not returning. As the Spirit is stirring amongst you, I want to hear that. I want to hear those testimonies for all of us. I want to hear all by the coffee. How is the Spirit stirring to lead us into new places in greater humility and dependence of Jesus alone with hopefully more of the right questions to ask, but also an awareness that maybe we haven't even learned the questions yet. Jesus says, go. I do know that. He says, I am sending you. Every one of us, I am sending you this week. And we say, we're not ready or here's the areas. I'll define the areas I am ready, but not those over there. There's discernment. It's not a one-size-fit-all. We wrestle in that tension. But I think far too often we say, I'll wait. I'll wait for the next sermon, the next class, the next understanding, the next equipping, and then I will go. And then, God, you will be amazed at what I can accomplish with you by my side. And Jesus does it completely different. He says, go, go out. I'll be here when you come back. Let's wrestle with this Jesus King sending agent discipleship as we respond today. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done, for continuing to surprise us and amaze us that your ways are not our ways. Help us grow, Lord, in being teamed, in needing one another, submitting to one another in humility out of reverence to you. 
even where we disagree, submitting to honor you, to maintain unity and oneness. I pray we would grow in trust, everyone. We would grow in full dependence of you and your authority alone so that you would get all the fame and all the glory and that your name alone would be proclaimed, not our name. Grow us in trust and faith, we pray. Lord, as we endure trials of many kinds, as we both test what we think we know and in humility are willing to come back to you for greater wisdom and strength, as we face trials of hardship and loss and pain, give us your endurance, Lord. Grow us even more. And as we live in the tension, because it's just not clear of when to step out in faith, when to walk, when to go, when to come back to you for more. And this life in the kingdom, this experience, keep us humble, Lord. Grow us stronger, we pray. We love you. We need you. We know you're sending us, both individually and to specific places that we have a, a unique call in our lives, but never alone, one with another. And collectively, may we be a light on this hill to represent you, to bring you the glory, knowing that we will find joy in that. Amen.